tropical paradise infused with the persuasion of Polynesian, Spanish, Portuguese, and American cultures. A melting pot of amazing food, people, and art. Surrounded by the blue Pacific Ocean filled with life and a favorite destination of divers and surfers from around the world. Fantastic mythical tales, legendary musicians, Waikiki boys, and the steel guitars set the backdrop. Sit back and enjoy the trip as we explore Hawaii. Aloha, I'm Scott Parrish and you're listening to Dying to Eat. Each episode, we'll be focusing on a different country, culture, or event and exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. If you love food, culture, and fun stories, then I've got a great show in store for you. Also, please visit our sponsor, Tailored Hemp, at tailoredhemp.com for all your natural, completely legal in all states, high-quality CBD products. CBD provides pain relief and can work as a sedative to help you get a good night's sleep. Skip the rest, try the best, tailoredhemp.com. And make sure you stick around to the end of the show to see what's cooking this week. One more special shout out to the Few Regret Boys. It's a podcast by friends of mine in Virginia that these guys will talk about literally anything that's on their mind. If you want to hear something fresh, check out the Few Regrets podcast. New drops every Friday on all major podcast platforms. Okay, Hawaii. A beautiful set of islands situated off the western coast of the U.S. mainland full of the richest culture you'll ever witness. We have seen the beautiful hula dancers wearing colorful lays around their necks, dancing to the ukulele rift in some rhythmic drum solos, or the male luau dancers with their passionate storytelling through dance and martial arts. Alua is the ancient Hawaiian martial art based on bone breaking, joint locks, throws, pressure point manipulation, strikes, usage of various weapons, and battlefield strategy in open ocean warfare. There's something about these dances that's so moving. Each of the islands formed from volcanic activity, so essentially the islands are situated on top of large mountains spurting from beneath the ocean. The Hawaiians take living on the edge to a whole new level. Their home is situated on a volcano. Eight islands make up the state of Hawaii. The Big Island, Maui, Oahu, Kauai, Molokai, Lanai, and Nihau. Oh, and one more, Kehoe Nihai is forbidden to the public due to a polio outbreak in 1952, as well as it's privately owned. Exotic flowers and delicious fruits grow in the area, of which some include pineapples, bananas, papayas, and there are some coffee farms as well. Natives have magnificent waterfalls and scenery available to them straight from their back porch. We will start with Hawaiian mythology and some of the unique stories that I've read about. Mythology is a series of intricately woven stories that ebb and flow through time. Natives hold these stories dear to their heart and continue to practice the ancient beliefs. Let's review the most popular. You may find that some resonate with you. Mana, 
a spiritual energy coursing through your veins and everyone you know. It also affects non-living things as well. And no, I'm not referring to Magic the Card Game. Mana is an ancient Hawaiian belief, closely related to karma, that collects for individuals who do good on earth and is taken away from individuals who do bad or harm to others. There are certain areas of the islands that are considered full of mana, and someone could gain great power from just being in that area's presence, like Halekala volcano that's in Maui. It's life energy. Another interesting belief is that you should never take rocks or sand from the islands. This is supposed to bring bad luck to anyone who tries. Pele, an important god to the natives, he was or she was a volcano goddess, put a curse on the rocks and the sand so that if any foreigner was taking them away, that person would be punished. Pele walks the islands in a red dress and white hair and will ask strangers for help. If the stranger refuses her, then they're in trouble. A rather scary legend is Huka Ipio, or the Night Marchers, who march along the coast in a straight line with torches while they sing ancient chants. Anyone caught by the Night Marchers must lay face down in the ground to surrender or they'll be killed. I'd heed the natives' advice if I were you. They know what they're talking about. If you visit Hawaii, you'll find hula girls waiting for you on your arrival to hand out colorful lays to signify your arrival. These lays are typically a string of bold colored flowers strung together into a necklace. The word lay is not actually a word as it is translated into a sequence of things that are strung together to be worn. So if you really think about it, you could receive a lay in anything. In ancient times, lays were created with flowers, seashells, nuts, and sometimes even feathers. Visitors receive lays on arrival because it means aloha or welcome. It symbolizes love, celebration, friendship, honor, and greetings. Royalty were the only ones to wear lays back in ancient times. This shows how deeply Hawaiians treasure their visitors. Traditionally, lays should be worn lightly draped over the shoulders with an even length in the front and the back. It's rude not to accept a lay from someone, and you must never take it off around the person that gave it to you. If having it in your possession is bothersome, you must return it to where it came from, the earth. So you could, like, hang it on a tree, or bury it in your background, or something along that line. Along with the myths and legends, Hawaiians are also known for their food. Since the islands are a big melting pot of culture, the food is incredible. Hawaii has some of the highest percentage of Asian Americans in the entire country. Some of the dishes that you can find here are Chinese char siu, which is uh, it's like a barbecued pork. Filipino, adob Filipino adobo, which I'm sure you heard our Cavite episode and we talked all about that. It's uh, meats that are marinated in ginger and soy and garlic, that kind of thing. Also, there's Japanese uh Samshi, and then, of course, regular sushi. There's a lot of Asian influence on the islands, so it's only fair that their food be that way as well. Traditional dishes are things like poi, which is taro. Taro is this uh, purple root vegetable 
back in the day, it used to be pounded into this smooth pulp, but you know, now we have food processors. It's certainly an acquired taste to enjoy, but many natives enjoy it as a side dish or on a salad. Another staple dish is poke. You may have seen or visited a local poke bowl restaurant in your area. It's like sushi, but spread out in this big bowl. It consists of raw fish, vegetables that you choose, and a condiment that's made out of soy, toasted sesame, lemon juice, and a little chili sauce. One aspect of Hawaii that's not widely known in the past or current uh, political environment, the Hawaiian people have suffered a great loss and sorrow after the invasion of their homeland in the mid-1700s. While history has not been on their side, they have persevered and fought to keep their heritage alive. The ancient Hawaiians set sail on canoes in the 4th century with plants, medicine, and enough livestock to start over. They were Polynesian voyagers from Tahiti, and they were looking to free themselves from their home country and begin a new settlement. Think about that. Can you imagine sailing hundreds of miles through choppy and dangerous waves in a canoe? These people were resilient survivors. For centuries, the settlers enjoyed peace and spent their time developing a new way of living for themselves. Polynesians were known for their sailor ship and their fishing abilities, but these islands were different. They required a different kind of upkeep. These sailors turned into crop farmers and fishermen capable of throwing together a sturdy rod that could catch a really mean fish. Eventually, the Hawaiian people separated into their own islands that were governed by their own chiefs. The chiefs were referred to as Ali. These Ali were the governing kingdom heads and they each had their own culture and they all had their own ways that they expected things to go. I guess that's common among leaders though, right? As mentioned before, the Hawaiians did have contact with the Western world. The first English voyage to come to the islands was led by Captain James Hook in 1778. He was originally looking for a northwest passage that was rumored to connect the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, but once he discovered that the islands were inhabited, he stopped and made camp. The Hawaiian people were welcoming and calm in nature, so they opened their arms to Captain Hook. That kind of makes me giggle, Captain Hook. So let's pause for a second. We know that history repeats itself and typically humans who have never had contact with each other tend to pass around their germs. And by germs, I mean syphilis and measles. The islands were not immune to these germs as they had never had contact with anything like them before. When the captain landed, there was an estimated population of about 400,000 natives. But by the end of the Western world's raid on the island's goods, the population had dwindled down to a mere 150,000. The discovery by Hook made the islands a prime port for sailors from Canada and even from China. Visitors were stopping around the clock and unbeknownst to the Hawaiian people, they were taking their natural resources. American John Kendrick in 1791 discovered that the sandalwood tree and its effortless scent. He took 
as much as he could get on his voyage back to America, he took so much that he depleted the islands of the tree. An Englishman by the name of John Vancouver gave Hawaii a large number of livestock back in 1791 that roamed freely throughout the open pastures. The livestock ate a large portion of their crops and introduced invasive species that have never been seen before. The once prosperous islands were beginning to falter under the Western influence. Fast track to 1820. New England missionaries heard of the islands and its bountiful farming. The missionaries were also interested in the Hawaiian people's religion and culture. They were interested in reasons that I'm sure you already know, and their arrival plays a very important role in the island's modern culture. The first part of the Hawaiian culture that made it to the chopping block was the traditional hula dances. For the people, these dances represented honor, honoring their chiefs, praising their gods, and fostering new growth for their communities. The hula was considered to be wicked and against all Christian values. Queen Kahuhu Manu, and believe me, I got that one right, the reigning queen of Hawaii at the time, banned hula dancing due to her newfound Christian belief system. Once the hula was taken away, the Hawaiian people were at the mercy of the missionaries. Modern New England clothes were given to the islanders, which ripped them of their cultural expression. The only benefit that these missionaries brought was the alphabet and being able to write. Before their arrival, the Hawaiian history was only communicated through song and ritualized chants. Ancient history could finally be written down and recorded for non-native people. The missionaries stayed and formed families with the native Hawaiians. The children became leaders in their communities, and these children had major influences on the coming political changes. In 1848, King Kamehameha mandated the Great Mahiwai, or Great Division, that was supposed to promise native Hawaiians the right to their own land. However, that was not the case as foreign rich businessmen used the loopholes of the mandate and bought 80% of the land. These businessmen created thousands of acres of sugar cane to make profit off the abundant Hawaiian islands. After this, immigrants from all over the world came flocking to make a working wage on the beautiful string of islands. Again, more and more visitors started stopping on the islands and making it their home. Sugar plantation owners began taking over the islands and by the early 1900s, they made decisions on banking and shipping as well. The rich businessmen essentially owned Hawaii. You may be familiar with the Dole family as they have the largest production of fruit and vegetables in the world. Even now in 2021, the Doyle family began their reign in Hawaii and they purchased the island of Lane to create a pineapple plantation. Dole succeeded as it became the largest crop of the land in the world to produce pineapples. All of this new growth on the island seemed to be positive as it made sugar and pineapples cash cows for the rich businessmen, but also helped line the pockets of the field hands for doing the dirty work. 
the Hawaiians were slowly becoming a minority in their own homeland as foreigners began making the money and calling all the shots. Again, the island's ancient culture was banned from being practiced. This included their language and necessary rituals to honor their gods and ancestors. Can you imagine having your entire identity stripped from you like that? The Hawaiian people have proven time and time again that they are incredibly resilient. While their culture was being suppressed by foreign influence, they continued to practice their traditions even though persecution was right around the corner if they were ever caught. Eventually, the plantation lifestyle began to lose traction as workers began demanding higher wages. The plantation owners were unable to pay workers what they were really worth. When you think of the Hawaiian Islands, what comes to mind? An all-inclusive resort with white sandy beaches? Maybe you see yourself holding a Mai Tai by a clear blue ocean. You'd be correct in thinking this about the islands. Tourism is a major industry and it greatly affects how the people live. Frankly, the tourism industry was not started by the Hawaiian people, but rather the rich business people looking to take advantage of their land ownership. Beginning in the 1860s, the Kilauea volcano became a major tourist attraction and brought visitors from all over the world. Before long, a very, the, the very first hotel was built, the Buzamuana. That was on Waikiki Beach. This hotel was a hit. W.C. Peacock, the businessman behind the hotel, took to traveling around the United States and Canada to advertise it in 1901. And boy, was he successful. Thousands of visitors flocked to Waikiki Beach to experience the Hawaiian lifestyle. You may be wondering how people even got to the island. Many traveled by steamship. A steamship from San Francisco to Honolulu would take four and a half days. As you can imagine, going through a lengthy travel time like that, visitors would want to stay a longer period so that they could justify all the travel, all the time it took. These travelers were rich, bringing servants and large chunks of cash with them, thus fueling the economy and giving the natives much needed living wages. In 1935, a radio show called Hawaii Calls played for millions of people over the radio in the United States, Canada, and Australia. By this time, visitors could fly in airplanes for a cheap rate and get to the islands. The visitor rate rose to a never-before-seen astronomical high of 31,846 visitors in 1936. Around this time is when World War II began, and in 1942, Japanese bombers dropped explosives on Pearl Harbor in Honolulu, Hawaii. I'm sure you know the story. This single event catapulted the United States into the Second World War. Tourism, tourism, tourism slowed down during the war due to it being a military base for the United States. The once booming economy and the beautiful sandy beaches were now covered in barbed wire and the islands were blackened out at night to prevent enemy fire. After the war, the islands needed to be rebranded to bring back the visitors to fuel the economy again. So the aloha culture 
was invented to make some of the area more appealing to tourists. The Hawaiian culture became a brand. The theme for local restaurants and hotels to take advantage of. The people became solely dependent on the tourism industry as all the other industries were stripped from them. Even now, the tourism industry is a necessary part of Hawaiian people as the majority of natives work in it even today. In 1959, Hawaii became the 50th state to be added to the United States. Actually, Hawaii has been annexed by the United States since 1898 due to President William McKinley his nationalistic views on utilizing the islands as a money-making uh, scheme were very important to him. It took 60 years before the Hawaiian Islands finally conceded and accepted their place as the 50th state. If you get where I'm going with this, the islands were illegally obtained by the United States because they never officially agreed. To this day, native Hawaiian people are not considered to be a protected indigenous group, but rather wards of the state. You may be thinking, Scott, what about the music? Hawaii is known for its bold rhythms and guttural warrior chants. While the ancient way of music is still practiced, there's so much more to the island's modern music scene. Yes, native musicians use ukuleles and guitars to harmonize with melodious voices, but there's so much more to it. The word music is not even translatable in the native language. In fact, the original songs of Hawaii were chants, also called mele, and they were a form of recording history. These chants date back to pre-contact Hawaii when settlers had not yet met, or the, the outsiders had not yet found the chain of islands. Men and women adorned in carefully crafted hula skirts would gather for their community and chant, sing, and dance their history so that they convey it to the younger populace. Ancient instruments consisted of gourds, rattles, stone castanets, and bamboo sticks. Can you imagine the rhythm that these people had to have? The modern Hawaii music rhythm comes from the ukulele, guitars, and drums now. The music style continues to develop through the centuries, but can really be picked up in the 1700s when the Portuguese and the Spanish began to immigrate to the islands. These missionaries introduced guitars to the natives, and it rocked these natives' world. Remember when we talked about visitors leaving livestock to graze in the open fields? Remember talking about them bringing invasive species? Yeah, well, enter the Mexican cow cowboys, or... Panalos. The cowboys taught the natives how to wrangle cattle, but they also taught them how to play the guitar. While the cowboys thought that they were rubbing off on the natives, they were wrong. The Hawaiian guitar players created their own style of strumming, and today we call it slat key guitar. It involves loosening and tightening random strings on the guitar and picking it up so that it sounds rhythmic. These are incredibly laid-back people, so it only seemed fit that they would make their music as laid-back as it possibly could be. Initially, the natives did not want to share the style playing, and they kept it within their own community. 
The rhythms were so good that the sound got out, and before anyone knew it, every back porch had a guitar player slacking. The Portuguese introduced the ukulele. Now, I think you know what this is, but it's a tiny guitar that ex it, it exudes a light and airy rhythm when you play it. You can probably think of a few ukulele songs that you've heard. Doesn't it make you just want to pour a tall glass of lemonade and kick back for the day? I know, it's contagious. Hawaiian music is almost always associated with the ukulele. It has become a music industry standard for the islands. There's something about the nature of these people that makes them so appealing to the outside world. Eventually, the sound got out of the islands and into the states in the early 1900s. Moe, or Papa Tao, to his fans, began touring the world and bringing melodic singing and quaint strumming of the guitar to the masses. The band's music could be considered the face of the Hawaiian culture. Honestly, when you think of the islands, you're probably hearing music that they were playing at the time, or something really close to it. This type of sound had never been heard of outside of the Hawaiian Islands, and it was fascinating in all respects to the world at that time. After the world tour of Papatau, hotels began hosting concerts and employing hula dancers to entertain visitors. The hotel concert scene is where the brand for the islands really took hold. Even now, Hawaii is still depicted as men in palm tree covered shirts wearing khaki playing wearing khakis and playing a ukulele, and hula girls are dancing around giving lays to strangers. Oh, what'd I say there? It's not a bad thing. This view of the islands brought tourism and has fueled their economy ever since. Bands and solo singers began incorporating the English language into their lyrics. Smart move. The Hawaiian musical muse movement took off. For years, actually, by 1952, 700 stations were playing bands like uh, Tao Moe, Al uh, Alfred Apaka, and Bing Crosby. All good things must come to an end, though, right? Well, it did for this wondrous musical movement. In 1960, rock was introduced and it took over the radio airwaves. Hawaiian singers began falling back into the postcard picture that showcased the laid-back island vibe. People were used to this image, and soon, all interest just faded away. This is not to say that there was not some incredible music that still came out of the islands, but the music lacked the audience. Gabby Poanawi, a native, began producing hit songs with traditional guitar riffs and a mix of jazz. He was famous for his pleasing falsettos that weave in harmoniously with the slack picking of his guitar. When he brought the new surgence of listeners to the island's music, it wasn't enough to overpower the new age of rock music that had taken over the radio airwaves. This stood true for many, many years. Without the eye of the world on Hawaiian music scene, they were able to go back to their ancient roots. Chance became a popular competition at local festivals. A sense of community was created for the natives, something that they hadn't had in centuries. If you remember, the natives were banned from practicing their ancient religions, chanting and the hula. Hula is the foundation for crafting traditional songs. 
In ancient times, warriors gathered to Hula to praise their gods and celebrate their victories. Take a listen to the songs that came out in the 1960 through 1980 time period, and you'll find that there are similar chanting and telling of stories weaved into them. Fast forward to the 1990s. The time period is where the epitome of alternative rock overlaps. Alternative music also made its way to Hawaii, and these young artists were creating competitions of music that was nothing like the artist's predecessors. The artists were looking for a way to get back into the mainstream of music, continue to spread Hawaiian influence to the world. There were several notable artists that came out of the 90s, including Amy Hani Ali Gil Gillum. Let me try that one again, because she is famous and she is an incredible artist. Amy Hane Ali Gillum. Also, there was Willie Kay and the renowned Israel Kamaka Vivo Lay. You probably know him as Brother Z. Brother is, excuse me. Uh, if you don't know who that is, trust me, by the time we end this, you'll know for sure. We will focus on Butter Is and his legacy in a bit, so just stay tuned. Gillum, while definitely not influenced by rock, brought a classical twist on the traditional storytelling aspect of Hawaiian music. She sang the Hawaiian language, which captivated everyone who listened to it. Gillum was the biggest female singer in Hawaii, and she even was acknowledged at the Grammys for several of her contributions to the Hawaiian music scene. Willie Kay was another slack-picking guitarist with a set of vocal cords that would rock you right off your feet. He infused conventional ukulele and drum rhythms and uh, brought in the electric guitar. Willie's music was groundbreaking for the music scene. Willie Kay's music was like the Hawaiian version of, I don't know, like a Sugar Ray song. Surely, with all this incredible music artistry, the Hawaiian people must have made an impression on other genres of music as well. And the answer is absolutely yes, they certainly did. One of the most notable contributions was that of Hawaiian native to all the genres of music is the steel guitar. Joseph Kaku, Ku, a teenager at the time in 1889, in Oahu created a method of using steel to strum guitar strings. No one is entirely sure how he came up with this idea because who would think to use steel to strum a guitar? One story goes that he picked up a railroad spike walking home along a railroad track. He put it in his pocket, you know, just as a souvenir. When he got back to his dorm, you have to understand he was a boarding student, he decided to pull it out and ran it up and down his guitar strings. If you've ever heard a steel guitarist, you'll know that that sound is very unique. In 1889, it was a phenomenon, and it was equivalent to the modern electric guitar for the Hawaiian people. Joe became a legendary steel guitar soloist and traveled all over the world. Touring the world with his invention brought a new instrument to different parts of the world. Every music genre began picking up the steel guitar and creating magic with it. We discussed earlier that in the 1800s and early 1900s, many Hawaiian customs were outlawed in the islands. 
Joe and many other musical artists took to traveling the world so they were able to practice their traditions without persecution. The artists particularly liked to travel to the southern United States who were known for country music and blues. Hawaiians and Southerners. Who would have ever thought? Actually, the Hawaiian influence is everywhere in country, blues, gospel, and rock. What's the main ingredient for a song for one of these genres? Think about this. Guitars. Not just a regular guitar, but rhythmic guitar slacking. Now, I know that my southern draw gets in the way sometimes, so when I say slack keying, I'm saying K-E-Y-I-N-G. In addition to that, is the steel guitar. Some historians believe that the Hawaiian influence was erased from country and blues history as the large record companies felt that these types of music belonged to a specific race. Honestly, a lot of the songs that you listen to today are heavily influenced by Hawaiian music style. Just like Hawaii being a melting pot for different cultures, their music's the same way. You can take the free-flowing Hawaiian style and match it to just about anything. Now let's discuss the life of musical genius Rudder Is. Rudder Is died early in life at the age of 37. He was born May 20, 1959 in Honolulu, Hawaii to parents who worked in the tourism industry. At the age of 10, he picked up his first ukulele and joined a family band. Not only could he play a mean ukulele, he was vocally gifted as well. Israel was so talented for his age that he was often invited on stage at the hotel his parents worked. The Sons of Hawaii, a famous band known for incredible vocals and the slack key guitar, would invite him to showcase his skills. I believe that Israel knew he was meant for more than the usual. He dropped out of high school to pursue his dreams of making music. Israel joined his brother Skippy, Louis Moon Kokagi, Sam Gray, and Karome Koko to form Makaha Brothers. Together, the band produced 21 albums that were all hits. His brother died in 1982 of a heart attack, but the band continued to play music in his honor finally ending in 1991. Israel also made solo music. Mostly what he was famous for was Somewhere Over the Rainbow. This song was a rendition of the popular Somewhere Over the Rainbow and A Wonderful World. What a wonderful world. You may remember it. It's something like this. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high. And the dreams that you dream of once in a lullaby. Now, I'm not a great singer like is, but you get the idea. These lyrics were thought to symbolize Israel's wish for Hawaiian independence free of the United States influence. Not only did the islands fall in love with this song, but the rest of the world did as well. His ukulele strummed beautifully as he alone sang the lyrics and this soft voice his solo career began in 1990, where he introduced himself as Brother Is. In 1993, he released an album called Facing Future, 
which made it to number one in the Billboard, in the Billboard World Music Charts. By 2002, this album sold half a million copies. That's just no small feat. Brother Is was the first Hawaiian artist to go platinum. In fact, it still remains the number one Hawaiian album in the world. That's just how much influence he had. Israel started off with humble beginnings. His parents were hotel workers, and he was just a kid with a good voice and a ukulele. He was exposed to repercussions of the tourism industry at a very young age, and all of his life he spent advocating for Hawaiian independence. The land, the people, and the culture were all incredibly important to Israel, and all of his songs spoke of his feelings about what the natives had been through. The islands were precious, one of the only pieces of land left on earth that still has most of its natural beauty undisturbed by human development. Unfortunately, just like with his brother, he died at the young age of 38. Himself and his family had all suffered with obesity for much of their life, and in 1997, it caught up with Israel. He died in a sleep of respiratory failure, leaving behind his wife and child and millions of people who loved him and loved his craft. Brudda Is died before he could see himself gain the recognition that he wholeheartedly deserved. I mentioned earlier that his song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, off the album of Facing Features, had made it to the top of the Billboard World Music Charts in 1999. Well... Israel was not alive to see this accomplishment that he'd worked so hard. It's usually how it goes though, right? He worked so hard his entire life and died before he was able to reap the reward. Israel would be proud of his Hawaiian community. Death is inevitable though, right? The Hawaiian people view death as a soulful experience for the ones that left behind, but also for the one who has passed. Israel's death was a state event. His casket was left in the Hawaiian Capitol building for three days so the fans could come by and pay their respects. This honor is usually only given to government officials, so this really shows you how deeply the state of Hawaii loved Israel. He was one of a kind, and after his three days at the capital, he was given a traditional Hawaiian send-off called the paddle-out ceremony. This tradition is mostly known by surfers who lose a person from their close-knit community. Brudda Is was cremated, and on his final day, he was set free in the ocean. His wife, daughter, and close family rode on a funeral boat as it drove out to the coast. People from every island stopped along the freeway to witness the ceremony. Everyone in the community united together for Israel. People on surfboards and in canoes joined hands and encircled the funeral boat at its last stop in the middle of the ocean. His memory was honored with a speech from his loved ones and traditional Hawaiian chants, and of course the song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Legs worn by the attendees were placed on the surfboard and pushed out into the ocean to symbolize Israel's departure. At the end of the ceremony, his cremated ashes were cast out into the ocean for him to continue on beside his loved ones. 
loved ones surrounding the boat splashed the ocean water to the heavens to wish him a goodbye. Rest in peace, brother is. You may be thinking that this Hawaiian tradition seems to be a bit modern as there weren't boards that you could surf on in ancient times. Their boards were really heavy, making it basically impossible. In fact, only warriors who had spirit animals that were dolphins or whales or, you know, some sea creature would be laid to rest in the ocean. Or you had to do something really bad to get dumped out there. You know, swim with the fishes. If you'd like to get technical, there were only a specific number of ways that ancient Hawaiians would dispose of their dead. These techniques consisted of cremation, cave disposal, earth burial, and sacrifices. So this ceremony was created recently, as recent as the 1930s anyway. And you'd be right in thinking that it was created by surfers. The surf community is very, very tight-knit, and it's small. And when someone dies, it's a very hard hit to that community. The deceased can be brought on a funeral boat to their in their casket, but you got to keep in mind that it's not legal to throw a body in the ocean, so they have to bring the body back to land so that it can be given a proper burial. Or the person's remains are cremated and then released into the ocean. While the ceremony is in session, surfers will make a human circle by joining hands. It is said that if a wave passes in the middle of the circle, then it means that the soul of the deceased is present. A research study was done in 2018 to find the significance of this tradition to the surfing community. Many said that the ceremony liberates the spirit into a higher space while letting the attendees mourn the death of the loved one. The ocean could also be considered like an eternal space. And what better way to go than to float eternally in the beautiful blue ocean? Now that we've established the background of Hawaiian people in all their glory, let's talk food. A staple in the Hawaiian diet may surprise you as it is Spam. Spam is a love-hate relationship for most. In World War II, soldiers brought Spam with them to the islands and introduced it to the natives. Note, we discussed this in the Nauru episode, so if you haven't listened to that one, go back and check it out. Originally, Spam was to supplement real meat during the wartime, but it ended up staying after the war ended. You'll find Spam in every Hawaiian home. It's made from this ground pork and processed with preservatives and flavoring agents. All of this is vacuum sealed into a compact tin can that you can find at the grocery store. Don't be fooled, Spam is delicious if it's cooked right. This leads me to our recipe for today, Spam Fried Rice. It's huge in Hawaii. I'll go through the ingredients and then go in detail about how to make it, but check the description for the written recipe, if you'd like to follow along and make this at home. <laughs> I'm going to start with unique. You will need one can of Spam diced. Now, you can use any flavor you like, but I like hot and spicy. Four cups of white rice. Half a cup of your favorite cooking oil. So, I like olive oil. And that's pretty common for most people. Two tablespoons of butter three diced carrots, four minced garlic cloves, 16 ounces of sweet peas, three eggs, half a cup of soy sauce, 
two ounces of pineapples, chopped green onions, and toasted sesame oil. Now this toasted sesame oil, set it to the side. This is separate than the other oil that you're using. And don't use it for both because too much sesame oil will just absolutely ruin your dish. The first step in this recipe is to cook the four cups of white rice that you will need. To, and, and after you cook them, they need to go in your refrigerator for a couple of days because you just can't get that crunch, that, that texture you need unless your rice is well aged. Next, pour a quarter cup of the oil into a large pan or a wok if you happen to have one. Add two tablespoons of butter and melt it over medium heat. After melted, add three diced carrots and four cloves of minced garlic. Stir frequently to prevent burning. And what we're looking for here is the carrots to just get soft. Add your 16 ounces of sweet peas and stir in your diced spam. Reduce heat to medium and cook until it's warm throughout. When it's completely warm, pour into a large bowl and set it to the side. Crack your three eggs into a bowl and whisk them until they're light and frothy. Pour a quarter cup of oil into the pan or wok and let it heat up again. Pour the eggs into the hot pan. Now, be patient. Pay attention to this part because it can get a little sticky if you don't. Continuously stir the eggs because you want the eggs to be partially cooked. The consistency should be that of scrambled but still runny. Once you reach this consistency, add your cooked rice mixture and just stir. A pro tip here would be to move the pan slightly to the edge of your stovetop burner and reduce the heat on the pan. You don't want to burn the rice as it'll alter the taste. Continue to stir and break up the egg and rice mixture. And while stir stirring, pour in a half cup of soy sauce and you want to cook that until it's all warm. Then add back your cooked vegetables and spam to the mixture and remove from heat. Place about a cup of the fried rice into a serving bowl or a dish or whatever you're eating in and add a little fresh pineapple to the top. Then a little bit of your chopped onions. Now take your toasted sesame oil and just drizzle it over the top. Let me tell you, this stuff is best eaten hot and if you hadn't had it, don't be put off by the spam. Try it out. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I know producer Pete thinks I forgot my dad joke. Now listen, I wouldn't do that to you guys. So, I burned my Hawaiian pizza last night. I should have used a little high temperature. <laughs> I make myself crack up. Alright, I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank B.D. Eichner for listening and commenting. I love to hear you talk. BD, I love talking and love having you as a supporter of Dying to Eat. This show is made possible by listeners like you. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, look out for new episodes every week on your favorite podcast platform we drop on Sundays. Make sure to drop us a like and follow the show to stay up to date on our latest episodes. We're on Facebook and on Instagram. So, who we who, au, and stay lively.